Hello, and welcome to Caper Confabs, a health professions podcast from Caper Interprofessional by Design. Confabs are informal conversations. Caper Confabs aims to talk about a wide variety of interprofessional education and practice issues together. So, confab with us. Today we'll be talking about the 2017 National Academy of Medicine's report on effective care for high-need patients. The report addresses the healthcare needs and experiences of a relatively small group of individuals who have a complex set of healthcare and social concerns and who use a disproportionate amount of health services compared to the rest of the population. They often receive care that doesn't meet their expectations. Our discussion about this report will take us into a number of topics important to the future of interprofessional practice and education, as well as health policy. We plan to provide some of the highlights of the report and whet your appetite to read it if you haven't already. There's a lot in the report that's useful to those of you who are in practice, as well as those of you who prepare students for caring for high-need individuals. My name is Jerry Lamb, and I'll be your moderator today. I'm the founding director of the center. I'm also a nurse by profession. I've spent most of my career working with and conducting research on improving care for high-need patients, especially related to improving coordination of care. Today, the CAPER CONFABS team is excited to be joined by Dr. Peter Long and Mr. Chris Barreto. Peter Long chaired the planning committee responsible for developing the report we'll be talking about today. Dr. Long is the president and CEO of Blue Shield of California Foundation. The mission of his foundation is to build lasting and equitable solutions to make California the healthiest state in the United States and to end domestic violence. He has held many leadership positions in philanthropic and policy organizations, including the Kaiser Family Foundation and the California Endowment. Chris Barreto is a licensed medical social worker who brings 25 years of experience to this discussion. He currently practices as a social worker at the Center for Transitional Care here in Phoenix, Arizona. He describes his role as one in which he helps patients and caregivers better understand the healthcare system and how to create a simple plan to improve patient health and family outcomes. Both of our expert special guests today bring important practice and policy perspectives to this discussion. Also joining our confab from the CAPER team are Michael Moramarco and Jeanette Senegal. Michael, Jeanette, would you introduce yourselves? Absolutely. Good morning. I'm Michael Moramarco, the project manager for CAPER. Thanks, Jerry. I'm Jeanette Senecal. I'm very fortunate to lead an instructional design team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation, and I also serve as the lead for faculty development initiatives in CAPER. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Jeanette. So let's begin. I'll start our discussion of the National Academy of Medicine's report on effective care for high-need patients by reading just a few lines from the preface written by Dr. Long. It has been known for some time that a small percentage of patients with complex health and social needs use a disproportionate share of medical care at significant cost to them, the healthcare system, and broader society. There also is substantial evidence that the standard of care provided to these individuals, while costly, often does not meet their expectations. 
I might point out here that in the United States, 5% of patients account for almost half of all our health care expenses. In this report, Dr. Long goes on to say that while there are a number of effective models of care serving these patients, these models are the exception, not the norm. The goal of the committee working on this report was to generate new ways of thinking about care for this population and to stimulate action, action to improve care and reduce costs. The report covers several important topics that set the foundation for improving care for high-need patients. They wrote about who are these people and how might we group them to target the most appropriate care. What are the promising models? Why are they successful? And finally, practice and policy changes that we need to make in the United States to expand these models and to spread successful programs. Just by way of background, briefly, the committee that put together this report held three workshops between July of 2015 and October of 2016. These workshops were attended by hundreds of experts and a wide range of stakeholders. Importantly, every one of the three workshops began with patients and caregivers telling their own stories. So let me start with a question to Peter. As chair of the group that developed this report, why is it important? Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. It's a pleasure to join you today. So I think you highlighted in your introduction the reason for this report is that systematically, as a nation, we are not serving the needs of our most vulnerable residents and and colleagues and neighbors and family. We have many shining examples in the United States of great small programs that have met the need, that meet the needs of of high-needs patients, but we've not looked at this issue systematically and not thought about how can we actually provide care across the nation that meets all of their needs. So I think that the the importance of this report is to move us from small solutions and small heroic efforts by providers across the country and families and caregivers to think about what would it look like if we had a system, a national system that met the care needs of high needs patients. And so that was the impetus for this report. How do we move from doing a number of very good things to actually a system that works for for all of the most vulnerable patients in the country? And so what we tried to do was take a systematic look first at the nature of who these populations were. What's surprising to me is that we don't have a standard definition. When we began this work, that we didn't have a standard definition of who are high-needs patients. Sometimes people use their costs in how much healthcare services that people use. Others use definition of functional status, so how people move about in their lives and how much support they need to do their day-to-day activities. Others uh, are about their utilization of care over time. So without a standard definition, we don't really have a clear understanding of this patient population. And one of the reasons we started each of our workshops with the patient and caregiver's perspective is we wanted to ground this work in actually people's lives. How do we improve their health outcomes? And ultimately, how do we improve their lives? So the impetus of the commission and this committee and our work was how do we actually target all of our efforts and set up a system that works for the highest need patients? So we think we've made a contribution to the field. We don't think these are not the answers. What we were hoping to do was ask a series of questions, provide a good snapshot of where we are as a country today, and then map out some ways that we could all move forward together. That's great, Peter. Chris, I'd like to ask you the same question. 
As a practicing social worker, what's important to you about this report? As a practicing social worker, this report was really important because it put into words and it put into our minds that we're on the right track in our clinic where I work. As a true social worker, to fully answer your question, I have to tell you a little bit of a story. Then I can tell for you how this report came to play uh, such an important role in validating what our clinic does. First part of this story is must disclose that, that Peter and I, coincidentally, are brother-in-law. As I took on my first role in social work, it was working with older adults. I got into the hospital system about five years ago, and my commission was to be a social worker in a busy internal medicine clinic. And I was told, okay, go in there and help the residents understand what are the social determinants of health and how they impact these patients that have chronic illness that are not achieving their medical goals. And I said, that's great. That's just in line with what I've done in the past, having worked in pharmaceuticals, having worked with older adults. There were incremental successes patient by patient. And when we got to the end of the grant cycle, I was telling the stories, but the stories didn't add up from a data perspective. I didn't have a spreadsheet that said, I served this many people, we saved this many dollars. I was able to tell stories about the families that we helped, about what the residents learned when we went into patients' home and saw that their housing was substandard. There are multiple issues involved in them achieving their medical goals. And I began to share these ideas with Peter, and Peter instantly, from his perspective, kind of at the high end of the academic, kind of the grant funding, decision-making, and he was able to shed light at that time, even on the project that I was on. And I shared some frustrations that I didn't have the results that I was interested in. I couldn't tell the story the way I wanted to. And he goes, yeah, maybe you guys could have done this or that. And we continued these conversations. And every year, we seem to get a little bit better. And then I moved to the transitional care clinic where this report is really kind of, well, I didn't know this report existed until about a year and a half ago. But when I came into transitional care, which is one of the many models that are featured in this report, and our model is specifically we're clinic-based. We have providers who can write prescriptions. There's a social worker in-house as well as a nurse. And we have other interprofessional disciplines that come into our practice as needed. As I began working in this clinic, and this was a brand new clinic, less than, you know, a year old when I joined it, with the idea of our mission was to take those most vulnerable being discharged from emergency room, from hospital, chronic illness, under or uninsured, and our role is to be the primary care provider to that patient for the next 30, 60, 90 days. So as I began to learn more about our clinic, I again ran into the same type of questions. How can I prove this? And am I on the right track? Let me ask you a question about this is as I listen to you in the practice setting, this is very real. Peter, let me bring you into this. You know, I'm thinking in my practice life as a nurse, and I also practice as a care coordinator and as case manager. The focus on high-need patients is not new. We've been talking about high-need, high-cost, high-risk people for decades in the healthcare system. Transitional care isn't new either. So what's different about this report you know, Peter, you spoke about taking it from small solutions, small successes into the national scene. 
where this work happens is where Chris is talking about it at the ground level. So what's what's new here? Sure. No, that's a great question. Um, and it's interesting in, in listening to Chris, I think part of the report is to try one of our challenges in the report was how do you provide a global overview of the system and what's happening and look at and have it be relevant for people who are practicing on the front line. So I think that was our biggest challenge as a committee, which is how do you say something that's meaningful both to policymakers, folks who are running healthcare systems or other social services, and also to people who are doing the work on the front lines every day like Chris. So I think the big contribution. So I do think I agree with you. We've been talking about this for 60 years. So I think two big contributions that this report makes are we need to get proximate uh, to our to this patient population, truly understand them. And this idea of segmentation of our population, that it isn't just, well, first, the, the first thing I would say is reorienting us to the goals of the patient and of the person and family are the goals of the system. So the, it, the ones that you referenced were around reducing hospital costs or reducing readmissions. Those tend to be focused on the outcome from the system's perspective. So, and particularly the healthcare system's perspective, how much we're spending. So first thing I would say is reorienting ourselves toward what are the goals of the patient and family and beginning to meet those goals. And the second thing that I think we contribute is around segmentation of the population. So we have treated this population as if they are homogeneous, um, and because you spend a lot of money on healthcare, therefore you are alike. But one of the things I think in our research and analysis of, of claims data and other information is that people who may be categorized in that top 5% of spenders look very different. They can be children with complex needs. They can be the non-elderly disabled who are permanently disabled, someone with multiple chronic conditions, the frail elderly, to someone who has an advancing illness. Their needs are very different. And if our goal is only to keep them out of the hospital, there are lots of ways we can keep them out of the hospital, but may not actually be tailored to their particular situation. Um, Another fundamental breakthrough, and I didn't expect this when I started as a health policy person, but was unanimous agreement at every workshop around what Chris was talking about, behavioral health and social factors that influence people's, first their use of medical care, but almost, and also just their health and well-being. So if you see in our segmentation in the report, no matter what your medical conditions are, there was uh, explicit attention to what your behavioral risk factors were and your social risk factors, and an acknowledgement that if we don't address universally or the whole person, we're not going to have success. The other big contribution I feel like we made, and I think Chris alluded to this in his um, in data and talking about kind of the balance between what's happening at a local level and then what can we infer patterns, was the tension between standardization and customization. So historically, we would celebrate in healthcare the heroic model, whether it's at Arizona State or it's at Mayo Clinic or at any, and say, oh, that's the Mayo model. What the committee tried to do was say, what are the key elements? Now, let's break this down so that Chris, in his work at the transitional care unit, can say it's about communication, it's about teamwork, it's about having good data. So let's get really clear on what the elements that we need to have in place, and let's also get clear in healthcare what we need to standardize, but then where do we need the magic to happen? Where is the customized magic that is actually interacting with people at a human level? And so I think those are, it's about to us, the segmentation acknowledging that it's for the person-centered and what their definition of success, and then getting very clear about there should be some standard elements about, just as Chris said, good quality of care. And then there are places where we need to allow the human element to come in. So I think that's how we've 
it, there's nothing magical, just as Chris was saying, keeping it simple and trying to make it relevant. But we were trying to be specific enough and detailed enough such that it worked for politicians and policymakers, but also worked for frontline practitioners and said, okay, here's how our lives and our work is going to be different. So that's what we hope our contribution it didn't. We weren't trying to, to prescribe something new. We were hoping to get really clear on what's working today and how can we do more of what works. That kind of leads into the point where I was in our transitional care clinic is we began doing our work. We were looking for means to show our efficacy because our clinic is not in the former model. It's not a revenue-generating clinic. It's a line item. It's an expense. Every salary and all the work that we do, we don't, we don't charge the patients that we see if they don't have means. If they don't have insurance, we still see them. If they don't have money to buy medications, we provide them. If they don't have transportation, we arrange it. We go to these, these, these lengths. And so at the end of our first year, we're trying to show the efficacy for at least this patient group, and we couldn't do that safely uh, it was, or easily done. It was done through chart audit, and it was prone to, um, you know, to human error. It's not something that you can redo every six months and say, yeah, we saved you know, this many dollars because of these patients that we saw. They stayed out of the emergency department, out of the the hospital, and look at these interventions that we did. We had a social worker visit them. We had, you know, they initiated with a a psychiatrist and have counseling, etc. So that was kind of frustrating for our clinic. We couldn't really make the case. And of course, in wanting to make the case to our administrators to say, hey, what we're doing is meaningful, and here's the dollar savings, period, the end. So in essence, what you were doing, Chris, is taking the successful examples from the report and showing how your processes are achieving the same outcome, even though you're not measuring those outcomes. Correct. What we're doing is we're saying, this is what they did to achieve success. If we follow this, these models, then we will achieve success. So I'm hoping that I can jump in here. Fascinating to sit here and listen to you guys talk about this. I'm loving what I'm hearing from you, Chris, about the direct applicability that you found here for your clinic and your processes. And you've you've referenced a, a number of times here some of these success factors. And in the report, they highlight about 14 or so different successful models. But those models while they're very promising examples, they're really more an exception to the rule. And so why do you find that is? I think that in looking at some of those different models, we actually reached out to those models to, you know, see what materials they're utilizing. Again, I'll answer your question. Just let me segue one more time away. My apologies. The one missing component that still remains in our clinic is that we can't quantify what we are doing. We can say we're doing what in the National Academies report, but that doesn't give us a number here. So with that in mind, I turn to these models that are listed, the 14 different models, and say, hey, what's your secret sauce? Give me the recipe. Let's not reinvent the wheel. That's another great social work concept. And true to true to the social worker, I, I went and asked these individuals, let me have your 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 data collection spreadsheet or your 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 process, whatever it is that you did. And made a lot of inroads with some of the different organizations and found out that they're spreadsheets and we can utilize them, but you gotta have somebody to analyze them on the on the backside. The other thing that we found out about these 14 systems is that it's hard to know whether they're sustainable, whether they're continually funded by large organizations like universities that can keep it as a line item. 
Whereas in my world, in my clinic, what I'm wanting to do is say, hey, we exist, keep us on the staff, this is how much we save. We're going to save more than what we cost this system. So we are sustainable in that respect. And so I think that's the difference between some of these larger models, or at least I have yet to learn how they are determined to be sustainable, because in my clinic, at my level, I have yet to be able to prove stability and sustainability. Peter, part of what you said the intent of this report and this work was, was to scale up some of these successful models and to move it onto the national scene from a system. What Chris is describing strikes me as very common. People doing very creative work who are struggling to justify it. What do we need to do to take the big picture of the report and translate it so that the clinics that Chris is talking about really have a leg to stand on and they are not as vulnerable as they are from year to year to year? That's a great question. I think the number one thing that the committee identified was to fix the misalignment between finances and outcomes. So in our healthcare system, we still largely pay for each service that we provide to someone, and it is not tied to their outcome, you know, an outcome that they would define as being successful, that they're either happier, they have, you know, greater uh, opportunity in their lives. So the number one issue that the committee addressed is until we fix the misalignment between what we pay for in healthcare, in particular healthcare since it's a $3 trillion industry, and what we expect to be produced on the other side, the outcome that we want to see, every other effort will be swimming upstream. They will be working as people heroically doing these projects at local levels, but the, the system will not reward them. And so we said if there's one thing that you can do is align the way that we pay for um, healthcare and services to match outcomes that we're seeking to achieve as our number one thing. There are lots of other things because from that, we believe then people will begin to collect the data that Chris is talking about. They'll actually begin to, to be mandated or, you know, they will have to collect the outcomes data. If we're paying for that, those outcomes, well, then, of course, you have to have the data on those outcomes. And the second is if we have more global payments that allow us to pay for whatever the person needs, whether it's health or social or behavioral services or even not services, maybe it's just connections, then you actually are freed up and people like Chris and the Transitions Clinic can actually tailor their service, customize at the right time to meet the actual needs of that individual and those families, and then you actually can receive results. So almost everyone, if not every one of the models that we looked at, even those that were very successful and highly promising, were working against the incentive system that we've set up in this country. So that's the number one by and far. Wouldn't you say, though, that value-based purchasing was set up to solve some of this? Sure, and that's too little. Um, so that I would say the outcomes are too proximal and they're too... I like to joke that the healthcare system's definition of, of patient engagement is enough about me. What do you think about me? Um, that they actually are, um, that, they're, that they're thinking, you know, they're not actually going. So these value-based things are our experience. And actually, there's another project I worked on um, with the National Academy around that the incentives are generally too small to drive action. 
so that Chris's clinic would be a rounding error for dignity, you know, for the dignity system. It's not big enough to actually drive change. So even if he were to get a 3% savings or 5% savings and it got reinvested in that clinic, the numbers aren't big enough to matter. And second is that dignity isn't on the hook, just as an example, for the true outcomes. That person says, my health-related quality of life, or frankly, my quality of life is improved. Therefore, dignity will get a big bonus payment, right, from the health plans or from others. So I'd say the value-based plans and value-based benefits and value-based experiments, payments, are in the right direction. But the committee was clear that they're not big enough and that they're not driving to the full conclusion that one would need to see to make this the norm and not the exception. One of the things that really stuck out to me when reading through the report and and really learning about this from a novice perspective is the emphasis and the places that emerged around the health information technology systems and how they can be quite a significant challenge. There's little consistency from different parts of the systems. They don't always account for these different layers of social and behavioral integration. And I'm always fascinated just how, as a professional geek, we have these technology systems that are like skeletons within within our systems. They drive human behavior, and they're so connected to that collection of data and outcomes, the communication processes, and the continuity. How, how is that something that we can grapple with and improve in the, in the coming years? So you just, thank you. You've segued to my next National Academy of Committee, <laughs> uh, committee that I'm chairing right now, or co-chairing. Nice on nice. um, health data as a core utility. So because we, we have uh, often in healthcare, we've da- health healthcare data is like gold, right? So, so often uh, the actors in the healthcare system control the data because that's how they control their financing and control, you know, that's how they get paid for documenting how they did on different services or documenting the services that they're providing. And frankly, that's the way that they hold on to their patients and keep them into inside that system. So the next uh, National Academy, it's in seriousness, the next National Academy of Medicine committee is on how do we create a a data health data as a core utility because until we actually have that shared data that we all can use to generate value on behalf of the patient not just on behalf of the system um, we're not going to get there and we do think one of the the skills that i think for interdisciplinary teams is that data analytics and pattern recognition and i also think one of the other it's a, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg issue because the data is so fragmented and difficult to use, we then don't derive the deeper insights from it. And then people say, well, why do you need the data if you're not actually using? We have so much data that exists today. But to your point, we're not thinking about it as an actual utility that we all can share and we can combine it from an, from an open source perspective. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I do think that you've put your finger on the challenge, what, which is partly why the committee said change what we pay for and how we pay for it. And that will drive a lot of behavior around the data. Because right now, you can still get paid and keep all the data to yourself. You just have to give the paying entity, whether it's a health plan or the government, you have to give them enough to show them you know, the services provided in order to get your payment. You don't actually have to provide all the how do the people do, what are the outcomes. You're not required to share any of that. And when you're not required, people haven't been sharing that. And they certainly haven't been linking the health and other social services data, which is a big conundrum because then we only have a fragment. We are trying to make decisions, Chris, is trying to make decisions about the entirety of a person's experience with little shards of information from different pieces. And that's impossible. I mean, that just isn't, you're not going to come up with a good solution when you were doing it that way. I wanted to make a case for the importance of having better metrics to capture social determinants, behavioral needs, social needs, as well as medical needs. Um, I One of the things I didn't mention is I co-chair the National Quality Forum Committee on Patient Experience and Care Coordination. And one of the things we really struggle with 
is that the state of measurement for the kinds of things that Peter is talking about at a national level and Chris is talking about at a boots-on-the-ground level is very primitive. We are not capturing what we need to. And what I'm hearing is it is so expensive to develop and test these performance measures that we just cannot move the field forward. And I think that needs to be part of the dialogue as well. And uh, I think, um, and I'll ask, you know, Peter and, and you, Jerry, if you have heard of the two-match program that CMS is doing. Two-match is what we're calling it here in Phoenix. But CMS, as I understand, has 16 sites nationwide, and they are embarking on their five-year grants to fund the collection of social determinants of health in large systems at high numbers to, to have a big N that you can analyze and determine the impact or the interventions done for those social determinants of health surveyed and recognized at in take and then applied with a community health worker and navigator to agencies in community. And what's the impact on those CMS patients, Medicare specifically, that come back into the system? So they're looking at a very high level CMS, 16 sites across the nation. Yeah, this is a five-year grant. They're already into the second year now. Peter, does this ring a bell or does it come to you as a different name? I think it's the Accountable Communities for Health, which is health and other social services in the intersection. It's under, I think it's under the um, CMMI, right? Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is great. And then I think the national, it'd be interesting, Jerry, in your perspective on the core metrics, the vital signs core metrics that the National Academy of Medicine put out a couple of years ago, I think now three or four years ago, which didn't specify the individual measures. Because one of the things we've tried to do in healthcare is try to get too specific and pick a measure but actually put out those 15 domains, you know, and I think that you could fit a fair number of social determinants would, would contribute to the different domains that were identified by the National Academy, which is another, we funded that project actually at the foundation and we're super supportive because we agree with you, the proliferation of measures, when you have way too many measures, you get cacophony and everything is different. We don't actually focus on what's most important. And so I think a, a very parsimonious set of outcome measures is going to, we're going to need to get there at some point. And I do think it's great to your to your point about the National Quality Forum is we do need to start to explore whether measures work, whether they're feasible. You need to, you know, look at all these aspects before you would make it an, an actual outcome measure and pay on it. We have to kind of figure out what Chris is talking about. Is it feasible? Can you collect it? Does it make a difference for people's lives? How is it connected to other things? So. One of the things I wonder about is not only what's the right team to care for these high-need individuals, but also the issue of how to capture each person's contribution. At the national level, attribution of impact is a big issue. Currently, our measures do not allow us to say, Chris did this, this, and this, and this. This is how much he contributed to the outcome, whether it be quality or cost, how do we bring teams into this dialogue in terms of impact, capturing what's important nationally, both to the consumer as well as to health systems? That's a good question. In thinking about that and applying that question to our clinic, not every member of our clinic engages with every patient. What's missing is how do we capture that? How do we know that Chris sat for two hours after the physician spent 30 minutes and the nurse spent 15? 
And we also know that Chris is not eligible to be reimbursed for Correct. care coordination. Correct. My billing rate is 0.00. <laughs> as is mine, as a health foundation person, mine is 0.002. <laughs> so I think two. I would have two responses. One is, do we need, because we've actually run up against this as a, a foundation work around electronic consultation. We've actually demonstrated that the, the referral to specialists has worked the patient is satisfied, the, the tests are actually the right tests are ordered. And where we've gotten stuck is exactly this issue, issue of attribution. So how much should you pay a cardiologist, for example, to read a text, a data-rich text from a primary care physician and help them manage care without actually, you know, we don't have a code for that. And how, is that worth one twentieth or one third of what they would do if they actually came to the office and managed their care. And it's interesting. That's the place where we've gotten stuck. And to me, that's the fee-for-service mindset and that we might, a couple of answers to that. One is if you look at a lot of these accountable care organizations across the country, they've just a priori said, look, if there's savings, we're going to split the savings. We're each going to get a, you know, a, a payment. And then if there's savings, we're just going to divide it up by a third or divide it up by a fifth or something like that. So I do think there are, are alternative methods of without getting into the granular detail and driving things, because to me, that still is a piecemeal payment methodology. We can actually just divide up the savings. I would love to have a model where Chris's team gets some of the savings to reinvest to improve their skills as a team. The patient gets some of the savings because they're actually doing better and they get savings and maybe dignity gets some of it. And if we're really being bold, we'd say, is there some of it going to the public good that we're going to improve the health of everyone because we've now generated some savings for the system? So I'd rather have us think about an a priori system of we're all contributing to something good. Let's just figure out a reasonable way to divide up those resources that are, you know, that have been freed up and put them to good use, right? Instead of thinking about where Chris is, does Chris get an extra $2 an hour or 20 or $1,000 an hour, um, which I'd vote for. Um, (laughs) But let's think about are there ways to divide up that mechanism? Because I think when we try to get so deconstructed, we have this uh, thing as foundations all the time. It's interesting. On a macro scale, it's the same debate we have for foundations, which is, did we contribute to a result or is there attribution that our foundation dollars, whatever they were, actually, you know, we can target and say that those things actually made the difference. And so I do think we, if we move to a place of good outcomes have happened and we have an equitable and reasonable way to redistribute that windfall, I actually think that could be a way to break through that impasse. And I do know that's one of the biggest challenges of the committee was as you move forward and move away from the proximal, one of the reasons that physicians and health systems like proximal outcomes is because they have greater control. And the first thing that they start to say when they read these characteristics and features is that makes me nervous because it puts a lot of onus on the patient or on a caregiver or on a social worker. I can't control those resources. So heaven forbid, please don't pay me based on what happens on things that are outside of my control. And so I know that this is a very important tension. And my, as I said, my thought is we have to break through conceptually and think about is there a different way to think about it because I don't I think we keep getting stuck when we deconstruct it at an individual level. Peter, if you put together a committee to rethink the model, I'm right on it with you. That Good. is a really provocative idea in terms of how to totally turn this upside down. Let me ask Peter, Chris, is there anything that you would like to talk about that we haven't as yet that you think is important to this discussion? 
So one thing I would like to, since you are a training center, is just talk about the workforce of the future. Because I actually think one of the challenges, we haven't equipped the current workforce. And I think you raised the issue, Jerry, around team-based care. So how do we work well with people who are outside of our discipline, who have other expertise and make the most? So I think a coaching function for all of us being good coaches, both for our patients and their families, but also within a team as a skill set that we really need to nurture in our in all of our professions, our caring professions. And then the other, I think, Jeanette, you raised this, but our data analytics and getting much more comfortable with looking at data and analyzing data in addition to our kind of individual clinical expertise. But how do we actually look at a population level and really understand that data analytics? And maybe not everyone on the team will be a data analyst. I do think we all need to be much more skilled in understanding that in that data. And then finally, I would just say communications, because at the heart of this, and we haven't talked as much about this, but there is a fundamental fundamental shift in power that we were talking about from the healthcare system back to families and that we as training professionals and thinking about them, how do we facilitate that shift in a meaningful way? So not just handing things back to the families and saying good luck, but how do we facilitate that shift in the balance of power to saying what are your goals and how do we help you achieve your goals? And I think that's at the heart of all of this work is is reshifting that balance. Um, and I think if we do those things, then it really will be a radical transformation from the bottom up. And that's so I just think and it does really start with our educational systems and how we train. That leads in with the situation we have at Center for Transitional Care, where we have multiple interns participating daily, really. I have a social work intern. There's a PA uh, intern that is there. We have pharmacy interns that come up, and they may not be engaging on every single patient. Uh, they may not engage at all, but they're there to watch the flow. They're there to, to collaborate. And, you know, it's interesting. Just having individuals in the clinic will generate questions, trying to tap the expertise. I think incrementally we build out a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of skill from our team perspective. And echoing what Peter says about having families, it's always our desire to pull families in and make them part of the plan. So can I just have one closing thought is I did this report and I'm kind of a health services researcher. My, my children joke that my wife and I are both doctors. Mommy's the kind that helps people and dad's the kind that writes papers. Um, <laughs> but this and this report has, was a labor of love. Um, and it became very real to me three weeks ago when my mother moved in with us. So my, my mother is 85 and has multiple. She would be on the list of a high-needs patient. She's been in the hospitalized, hospitalized five times in the last year. And it hit home. And I went back and actually reread and preparing for this. And I'm like, wow, all of this is so true in her life. But the story is about putting her in charge. Because when we put the, we're trying to manage her medicines and we're trying to just adjust things as if she's a problem statement. It was interesting. It went very poorly in our family. And we kept reporting among the children of like, mom is resistant. She doesn't want to do this. And I had the privilege of taking her. My, we had a dance at our school on Saturday. And we, my wife and I took my mom to the dance. And they were playing music. And she said, I haven't been to a dance in years. Let's go dance. This is a woman with two knees who have been replaced, a hip replacement. And we went out and danced. And we danced. And I said, that is actually what this report is about, is about Betty Long getting to go dance. And what do we can we do and set up our system? so that Betty, and you see the smile on her face, I'm like, that's really what this is all about. And so it's a great reminder of you can type a lot of words and have a lot of meanings, but ultimately it's about allowing people to be happy and fulfill their, you know, what they want in life. So I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than with let's dance. 
My reaction to reading the report after spending most of my career in care coordination with very high-risk, vulnerable individuals and families is I was struck with how ambitious this report is and how far-reaching. And after talking to both of you, it strikes me that what we're talking about here is really the heart and soul of healthcare transformation. It's really about patients and their families, and it's not giving them control or letting them have control. The reality is they have control. What we have to do is give them the tools and the knowledge and the support to really live that control and to dance. What a lovely ending, Peter. I just loved it. So thank you both so much. Thanks to Michael and Jeanette for just an outstanding discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Caper Confabs. We'd love to connect with you and hear about your buzz, so please check out our website at ipe.asu.edu. Engage with us on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at caperconfabs at asu.edu.